All right, now it's time for questions based on Genesis 32. Genesis 32 questions. We have the first one here? Sure. Yes, yeah. go ahead. Uh, so in verse 5, when, it, Jacob, or when Jacob is uh, talking about the blessings that God has given him, he mentions the livestock and also male and female servants. Are those servants, should we take them to be slaves? And then if so, uh, how does that fit in with what's commonly believed, that, you know, slavery being a great evil, why would God give him slaves? Yes. Okay, yes. In verse 5, in Genesis 32, 5, it says he has male and female servants, servants according to the NASB. The usual word for servant or slave in the Old Testament is the same word. It depends on the context. But I think that it does here mean slaves, male and female slaves. And so Jacob owned slaves. The same with Abraham, that he also owned slaves. Because in Abraham's case, it actually uses a word. It says in Genesis 12, verse 5, Genesis 12, 5, it says, The persons which they had acquired, the persons which they had acquired, which means they would have purchased those persons, those slaves. Abraham owned slaves and Jacob owned slaves. That's clear. And then even in the book of Exodus, Moses regulates slavery, how it should or shouldn't be practiced. He does not forbid it. He does not condemn it. He regulates how it should be practiced. One example is Exodus 21, 1 to 11. 21, 1 to 11. He says, for example, verse 1. Now, these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment, so forth. There the NASB clearly says a Hebrew slave, not a Hebrew servant, but a Hebrew slave. These were not um, low-paying or blue-collar workers, low-paid blue-collar workers called servants. They were actually slaves acquired or purchased by their masters. All right. This institution existed in the Old Testament. It existed in the New Testament. It's even regulated in the New Testament. Even regulated. One example of its regulation in the New Testament is 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves flee from their masters. It doesn't say that. He never said that. He said, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit our believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. He doesn't order, advise these slaves to flee or leave their masters because slavery is an evil institution. In verse 1, he says, regard them as worthy of all honor. He tells the slaves, commands them. And in verse 2, he says, even when you have a believing master... Don't try to leave a believing master under the pretext, well, we're both believers, so just let me go. Just be kind and generous to me and just let me go now. Don't make me fulfill my years of duty or pay for my release, my freedom, or anything like that. He doesn't um, recommend any of that. He says, don't be disrespectful because they are brethren. Don't be disrespectful because they are brothers in Christ. Don't think that you should honor them even less. But he says, let them serve them all the more. Be even more diligent to serve a believing master if you are a believing slave. And those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved. Okay.
So it's clear the New Testament does not prohibit and condemn or even mitigate slavery. It does not. Christians have practiced slavery um, since the time of the apostles. They have practiced it since the time of the apostles. It did not become something disdained and outlawed until the rise of slavery between the Europeans and Africans and those settlers in North America. It did not start to be disdained and demonized until that time. And some of those proponents of the abolition of slavery were Christians and Reformed Christians, like John Newton. Um, so those things did happen, that's correct. However, did they have a biblical justification for the abolition of slavery? It doesn't appear to me that they did. They did have biblical justification to regulate it and make sure that it was not abused, but they did not have biblical authority to abolish it completely. Because if an institution is deemed by the world as being evil, is it by that very nature being evil or, or overrun by evil? Is it therefore to be abolished? Because what has happened is slavery was abolished, then marriage becomes abolished through the rise of feminism in the 1900s, and then families are abolished, and everything is being abolished. And the only thing that is remaining in that ideology, that philosophy and political ideology, the only thing that remains in the, and is standing is a tyrannical government that regulates every part of your life. So in the name of, of abolishing slavery, demonizing slavery, and even demonizing the Bible, and demonizing Christians of the past, what they are doing is enslaving everybody. In the name of rejecting slavery, they are enslaving everybody. If we give more and more money of our money for taxes, then we are enslaving ourselves to the government and they are our despots, they are our tyrants. If we are giving up more and more of our personal freedoms to the government, then we are slaves of the government. And this is the same government or the propaganda outlets that they have. They are the ones telling us that slavery is evil all the while they are enslaving us. So they don't really have a moral ground. They, they pretend to have a moral higher ground, but they really don't have a moral higher ground in the name of demonizing American history. Of course, when wrong happens in marriage, it needs to be confronted. When sin happens in marriage, it needs to be confronted. But it doesn't mean you destroy marriage. When sin happens in family, that needs to be confronted. But it doesn't mean the institution of family needs to be rejected. When sin happens in government, why don't we ever hear about this? When sin happens in government, are they calling for the abolition of all government? No. No. Or, in the, so in the same way, when sin happens in slavery, does that mean that all slaves must be uh, free automatically? No. No. The sins, the evils that take place in any institution or in any individual, they need to be confronted, but not the, the actual institution itself, biblically speaking. Okay, in the back. A follow up? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to word this, but um, I mean, wouldn't it be just if someone uh, is a thief, steals some property from someone, and they're not able to pay it back, would it not be just for them to become a slave? Yes, okay, the question if there is a thief and he doesn't have enough to pay back what he stole, would it not be just or righteous for that thief to become a slave? The answer is yes. Exodus 22.3. Exodus 22.3. If the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. 
he shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. He shall be sold for his theft. That answers your question right there. Uh, now, I anticipate an objection. Well, that was in the Old Testament. Okay. Those people who say, well, that was in the Old Testament, it seems that it's convenient whenever they want to cite the Old Testament, they cite it. But whenever we cite it correctly, they say you can't cite the Old Testament. That's the problem. Number two, this, we're dealing with something moral. We're not dealing with a ritual like circumcision or animal sacrifices or the lighting of uh, burning of incense and candles in the temple. We're not dealing with rituals. We're dealing with morality. And morality is universal. Therefore, if morality is universal, these universal moral laws, injunctions from the Old Testament, why can't we practice them? Didn't we used to? Yes, didn't we used to? Yes? So, in understanding that, because I was trying to reconcile you shall love your neighbor as yourself with the aspect of slavery. No one, no one wants to be a slave themselves. So, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't want to then have a slave. But this seems to be that, after that question, it, it's usually around slavery happens around justification or, or justice. It's, it's just and right for someone who committed a sin against another to properly pay for it. So is that is that where it, it happens? You know, you know, how would that then be, or how was it practiced? Was the slave usually someone who owed someone and had no ability to pay it, so they paid with their life in that way? And the person who had slaves wasn't just going out hunting down and buying slaves as much as they were. Uh, it was justice being given to them for wrong. Okay. You said first that people don't naturally first off say, I want to be a slave. And so what would be the context in which somebody becomes a slave? Would it be something like this, a matter of justice? A thief doesn't have enough to pay back, so therefore he becomes a slave. Um, firstly, some people are very happy to be slaves. Some people, that's why we have uh, an, an immense welfare system. People are very happy to receive plenty of goods and services from the government and sit at home and become overweight. They love that. They love that. So it is, in a right thinking mind like yours, nobody wants to be a slave. But in the minds of many people, they're very happy to be slaves to a certain extent. Okay? Um, now, having said that, yes, it's usually around matters of justice, but not necessarily only that. In the case of what we just said from Exodus 22, 3, if he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. But notice also Leviticus 25, 39. Leviticus 25, 39. Here's another reason why someone might become a slave. This, this, in a sense, is justice, but it's also financial. Look at 2539. And if a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner with you until the year of Jubilee. In this case, the scenario is somebody becomes so poor that he sells himself. He sells himself because of his poverty in order to sustain his life and perhaps also his family. That would, if, it, if he was the debtor and the creditor, then it would be a matter of justice, but not necessarily so because of extreme poverty. Someone might do that. Yes. Now, why, why would you bring that up? In Exodus 21, if a slave 
marries a wife and they have children and the slave goes free, that the family does not go free. That's correct. Now, why would you bring that up? I'm trying to, uh, my incorrect sensibilities want to understand how, I don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> it seems wrong. It's obviously not, but it just seems that way and I was trying to understand Okay, in Exodus 21, verse 3. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the, plain, uh, the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man and so forth. Well, in the first scenario, if the slave came with his own wife, then once he has fulfilled his duty, they go out together. But in the second scenario, the master gives him a wife. So he is agreeing to marry a woman selected by the master. So the woman belongs to the master and the children from the marriage belong to the master. Now, that's the reason why they don't go out together. If the, if the man, the, the male slave, wants to go out, then he go, goes out alone. Because the woman first belonged to the master and the children of the woman belong to the master. That's the reason for it. But hopefully, the slave has enough sense to say, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out as a free man. Uh, unless, of course, he's fulfilled his tenure and has the ability to become free. That's what it means. Also, but he could also choose to be there permanently. He loves the situation so much, he could stay there permanently. It says in verse 6, His master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him Permanently. That, that means that some slaves enjoy the, the situation with their master so much, they don't want to go out. They have a very peaceful, help, um, happy life for them and their families, and they just want it to continue that way. By the way, I, saw, I, I heard somebody recently say, in the 1800s, after the Civil War, when uh, President Lincoln ordered martial law, in Missouri, the Missourians didn't want to give that up because before the Civil War, their government was so corrupt that they didn't want to go back to their co corrupt civil government. They would rather have the soldiers there and make sure everything was calm and peaceful. And Lincoln and his, one of his generals tried to persuade them, and eventually they succeeded, persuaded the Missourians to keep uh, or go back to civilian life instead of having military rule in Missouri. That was in the 1800s after the Civil War. So those, those citizens of Missouri, they said, no, we like it this way. This way is better because everybody's safe. There's no corruption. We don't want to go back to the civil government that had so much corruption. Sometimes those, and that's what's happening with Exodus 21. The slave says, no, no, this situation is good. I don't want to go back uh, or go out of this this house and this uh, master's estate. I don't want to do that. Yes, in the back? Yeah, just you know, the Bible is super clear on regulating slavery as we see it in the Bible. It's pitched there in Exodus 21 other places. The New Testament, you know, the commands there, like you said, you know, Jude, uh, well, Haman, Really clear 
biblical guidelines to abolish him because uh, it's not a picture of people going to the masters willingly, not going to masters because of a crime that they have committed. It, it would have been people who were captured and taken to that, which would be, and Christians should be opposed to all aspects. Okay, in warfare, the situation in warfare is your point. Now, in some wars, there is, uh, there are the, the, the aggressor, who's malicious, the aggressor, and then the innocent nation that is defending itself. Now, if the innocent nation defends itself, they could choose to enslave the aggressor because that's a part of the wage of warfare. That's why it's called waging war. So when war takes place, when you defeat your enemy, you need some wages from that. So if the defending innocent nation defeats the aggressor, then fine. But if the aggressor defeats the innocent nation that, that was trying to defend itself, then they would be in the wrong to enslave them and then to sell that population. So uh, the, even there, that, that is a, a, a different situation. Depends on what's happening. Yes? Okay, yes. How can we explain that there is one gospel, covenant of grace, everlasting covenant, covenant of peace, from the beginning to the end of the Bible? That seems so, so very clear and so very necessary. First, let me establish that it is necessary. And we do that from Galatians 1, 6 to 10, and Galatians 3, 6 to 14. In those two passages... The Apostle Paul says that we are under a curse if we preach a different gospel, chapter 1. Then in chapter, uh, chapter 3, 6 to 14, he says, Abraham believed that gospel. Abraham believed that gospel. So that gospel did not start in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It didn't start at that time. It was already deep, deeply embedded in the Old Testament. And Abraham is the prime example of a man of faith who believed that gospel. Again, Galatians 1, 6 to 10, Galatians 3, 6 to 14. If the apostle is so adamant about it, so very dogmatic, and you know, if you read Galatians, he's very angry. He's both angry and concerned at the same time because he doesn't want the true gospel to be perverted. So if we deny the fact that there is only one gospel and Abraham believed it, 
then we are subverting the gospel, we believe a false gospel, and we are under a curse. People like to ask, is this an essential doctrine? People like to ask, is this a foundational doctrine? People like to ask, do we need to be so insistent on this and dogmatic about it? Well, Paul was. Wasn't Paul? Paul the Apostle? So if Paul was, he understood the issues and he clearly explained so in Galatians, then we should. Okay. Further, your question is, how can we know that in the book of Genesis, and let's say from Adam to Abraham, that they believed in this one gospel, that Christ, the Son of God, would come into the world, live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, and rise from the dead for our forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That is the gospel. And that's what's explained in Galatians, right? How can we say they believed it? Well, firstly, let me take you to a few verses in the book of Genesis, and we'll make some cross-references from there. In the book of Genesis, I will assert that both Adam and Abel, to use these two examples, Adam and Abel, before Abraham, and even Abraham, that they believed in the same gospel we believe. They believed in the same gospel we now believe. First with Adam. It says in Genesis 3.20. Genesis 3.20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Her name means living or life. Living or life. And, and so, why would he give this name to his wife? Is he saying this merely because there's going to be children from them? Because it, it seems that the children don't come until chapter 4. Right? Chapter 4, verse 1. And by chapter 4, verse 1, the man had relations with his wife Eve... Before that, we have chapter 3, 24. So he drove the man out, out of the garden. He drove the man out. And so Adam was not living in the garden, according to chapter 4, when the man had relations with his wife Eve. After the fall of Adam and Eve, God drove them out of the garden. And therefore, when they begin to procreate, it starts in chapter 4. Not in the garden, but outside the garden. That makes me think that in Genesis 3.20, Adam is not thinking so much about physical life, but spiritual life. And why would he be thinking about spiritual life? Because he repented by then. By the time he gave this name to his wife, he repented which I think was soon after God confronted him. He repented. That's one. Number two is Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God made garments of skin, which means that we have to have at least one dead animal. Why a dead animal? for clothing them, covering their shame. Now, why is their shame being covered? They tried to cover it with fig leaves earlier in the chapter. God now makes a better provision for them, but what would he be signifying with this better provision? The shedding of blood in anticipation of the shed blood of Christ. That's why he would do that. He's not doing it just so that they have better quality clothing the Bible is not about better quality clothing. The Bible is about spiritual truth. And it's illustrated with the better clothing, the garments of skin, better because there's blood that was shed. God initiated, this was not Adam's idea, it was God's idea to initiate this. So it starts with God, he kills an animal, and then he uses the skin of the animal to clothe Adam and Eve. Right? Now if he does that, God's initiating what he intends by it. He's illustrating what he intends by it. He has to be. It's not just mere new garments. 
It's new garments because they are new creatures, because they believe in Christ. Adam and his wife, and clothed them. They had shame because of their sin. Now their shame is covered. Their sin is covered. That's the illustration. Also, we note in Genesis 3.15, God says that there's going to be the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Her seed, her seed, her offspring. The woman's offspring is going to bruise or crush the head of the serpent. Right? Who is this seed of the woman? Who is this seed? If we read about the seed or the offspring from Genesis 3.15 and how it is reiterated in the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, this seed is Christ. And in Galatians 3.16, the Apostle Paul actually says this. In Galatians 3.16, he actually says who the seed is. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. He says the seed is Christ. Verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Uh, Verse 22, But the Scripture has shut up all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul says... The seed is Christ. If Paul says the seed is Christ, then the seed is Christ. Correct? We can't say the seed is someone else, and then Paul reinterprets, misinterprets the seed to be Christ. I once had somebody teach twice Galatians 3, and he said, he said in his teaching that the seed was first Isaac, and then Paul made it spiritual and made it a reference to Christ. He said so. He said, the seed was Isaac. So Abraham was saved, believing that God would give him this seed offspring, Isaac. That's how Abraham was saved, believing that promise. Not looking even farther into the future, to the coming of Christ. Not that. Abraham didn't see that, according to him, that teacher. But Paul said, it's Christ. He didn't say, it was Isaac, now I'm making it Christ. He said, it was Christ, because he even cites Abraham. He cites Abraham. He's trying to illustrate that even Abraham believed in Christ. So if Abraham believed in Christ, we should believe in Christ. That is, that he would die and rise again for our sins. Furthermore, we have in Genesis chapter 4, let's move on to Abel. It says, The man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Why is she acknowledging a man-child, a male offspring? Why is she doing that? Could it be that she's doing it because she anticipates in verse 15 that her seed, her offspring, will come about through her, will come through her. Then we note that Abel and, and Cain, they offer their sacrifices to God, right? Look at verse 4. And Abel, on his part also, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering... But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Why does the scripture say that God had regard for Abel and his offering? For Abel and his offering. 
It makes a distinction. Abel, the person, the man, the believer, and his offspring, or his offering. But Cain, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. It mentions both the man and the offering. Why? Well, according to Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 4, because Abel had faith. Abel had faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, that through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. He had faith. That's why it says God regarded Abel and his offering. Because he had faith, he brought a proper offering. Because Cain lacked faith, he brought an improper offering. It's the, the two of them together, because of Abel and his faith. Someone might say, well, faith in whom? How did Abel know these things? Well, for one, if God initiated the first sacrifice in Genesis 3.21, then certainly Adam and Eve, if they were believers, would have taught Abel the correct way, and even Cain the right way. In fact, when Cain is confronted, God assumes Cain knows the right way, but he did not respond in the right way. It says here in Genesis 4-7, God to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you, but you must master it. If you do well, God doesn't say, I apologize, you didn't know how to do it well. Now let me tell you. No, he assumes Cain knew the right way. Cain knew it just like Abel did. But back to Abel and whether he knew. Look at Luke 11, Luke 11, 49 to 52. Luke 11, 49 to 50. Well, we'll read 49 to 51. 49 to 51. Christ is speaking. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Christ is speaking of the blood of all the prophets. All the prophets. And, all, and he means all the martyred prophets because he uses the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah. This means that Abel was a prophet. Why would a prophet of God not know the right and true way of salvation so that he not only believes it, but he teaches the people to believe it. He had to, he had to just like Isaiah. Isaiah, he would have been derelict if he did not teach the people what Isaiah 53 means. It's not enough just to announce the words, you have to explain the words to make sure people understand. And so, in the same way, Abel would have not only preached it, he would have uh, believed it and believed in reference to Christ. Okay, now, another man, another man who is a prophet, let me jump ahead and then come back, since we're talking about prophets. Did you know that Enoch was a prophet? Enoch, in Genesis chapter 5. And Enoch is after Abel and before Noah. Between the time of Abel and Noah. And Noah, of course, is before Abraham. But Enoch was a prophet. Jude and verse 14. Jude 14. We know that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him, right? God took him up, but he was a prophet, according to Jude 14. And about these also, Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied prophesied, saying, 
Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Who is this Enoch? Is it the same as Genesis 5? Yes, because he says the seventh generation from Adam. If you count the generations in Genesis chapter 5 from Adam, Enoch is the seventh generation. That same Enoch, he says, prophesied. Well, who prophesies but prophets, correct? He's a prophet, therefore. He's at least a prophet with this oracle. If he wasn't for much of his life, he was at least with this. He was a prophet. And what does he prophesy? Behold, the Lord came. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord according to Jude? We start, we start in Jude verse 4. Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says that's our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he means, Jude means, that this Lord is Christ, the Lord Christ. Then he says, came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. Well, when is that judgment coming? In the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. If he's preaching the second coming of Christ, is it incredulous to think that Enoch preached the first coming of Christ? Why wouldn't he? If he preached the second coming, the day of judgment, why wouldn't he have preached the first coming of Christ and the purpose of the first coming of Christ? To die and rise again for our sins. Right? It's not far-fetched to think that. In fact, it makes more sense to think that. It coheres, it makes Scripture cohere when we think of it that way. So, Enoch was a prophet too who preached the first and second comings of Christ. Is it... Too much to ask to say Abel, being a prophet, also preached the first and second comings of Christ? And that's why Cain hated him and wanted to put him to death? Could that not be? Yes. Okay. Now back to Genesis 4. After Abel is murdered, we pick it up in Genesis 4.25. Genesis 4.25. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. First, we see she names him Seth. Seth means um, he appointed, or he set, he put, he appointed. That's what his name means. Why is it she, that she's concerned about maintaining the godly line? Because that's what we see in Genesis 5. The godly line from Adam, Seth, Enosh, because they called upon the name of the Lord, from Enosh all the way to Noah. And then in Genesis 11, from Noah to Abraham. The godly line, that's why the genealogies are there, to show that going to Christ from, from these ancient patriarchs to the later patriarchs, right? So that's her concern. That's Eve's concern. And Eve was not, she was a woman, of course, but she was not a priest. She was not a king. She was a woman. And she had this kind of faith. Further, verse 26. Then, or at that time, men began, began to call upon the name of the Lord. This does not mean nobody called on the name of the Lord before, because we already saw earlier in chapter 4, Abel does when he's sacrificing. He must have been calling upon the name of the Lord at that time. But this is speaking more of the immediate context and how generally this began to happen more widely than within just the immediate nuclear family of Adam and Eve. Because they had many children, and 
there were many people on the earth at that time. So the word began to spread. Well, we have to ask, what does it mean to call upon? What does it mean to call upon? We also have to ask what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. Who is the Lord? It says the Lord, meaning Yahweh or Jehovah, right there in Genesis 4, 26. Yahweh or Jehovah, Genesis 4, 26. But who is Yahweh? It's one thing to say the name Yahweh, but can we not have more specificity? Does the Bible give us that specificity? Who is this Yahweh or the Lord? And could it be the Lord Jesus Christ? Could it be that? And the answer is yes. This refrain we see in in other places, in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they called upon the name of the Lord and they would build an altar, right? That's in various passages. But notice with me, first, um, Joel 2, Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. Joel 2, 32. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Joel 2, 32. He says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered or will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, is this calling and deliverance or salvation, this escape, this survi- uh, these survivors, is this talking about in a physical sense they are survivors? Or are they survivors or remnants, the remnant in a spiritual sense? Well, I think it's spiritual. Look at verse 32 again. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever calls, but who's going to call Look at the end of verse 32. Whom the Lord calls. So whom the Lord calls first, then that individual will call on the name of the Lord. The Lord has to call effectually for them to call on His name in prayer for their salvation. That's what He's teaching. And also, if we read starting at verse 28, He's predicting, Joel is predicting the day of Pentecost when there would be many on the day of Pentecost who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. But on the day of Pentecost, who are they calling upon? Acts chapter 2, 14 to 21. They're calling upon Christ to be saved. Or if you read all of Acts chapter 2, from beginning to end, it's all about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those who call on the name of the Lord. Our next passage to show this is Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion... A stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed or will not be put to shame. Who is the stone that the Father lays in Zion? A tested stone, costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes in it, meaning the stone, or if we take this as a personal reference, a human personal reference, he who believes in him will not be disturbed, put to shame. What's Isaiah talking about? If we acknowledge Isaiah 53 is about Christ, and the plain reading of the text in its original context for Isaiah 53, it has to be Christ, not Hezekiah, Josiah, Jeremiah, or anybody else. 
it is Christ. Isaiah 53. So why would Isaiah be preaching somebody else in 2816? Okay, having said that, let's now turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We pick it up at verse 8, 10, 8. Romans 10, 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart... A man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 8. This is a passage we could have also read from... Uh, Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14, where Moses also is preaching the gospel. But he, he says that same gospel Moses preached is also the word of faith which we are preaching, verse 8. Further, he tells us the content of his preaching, verse 9. If you confess, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He tells us right there. Jesus as Lord, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And this is terminology taken from Genesis, Isaiah, Joel, right? Then in verse 11, he quotes Isaiah. For the scripture says, he quotes Isaiah to prove what he's saying, that his doctrine is not a new doctrine. It's an old doctrine. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then he makes it universal, verses 12 and 13, by citing Joel, but even Joel, he took it from Genesis 4.26. Joel's phraseology comes from Genesis 4.26. Call upon the name of the Lord. And he says in 4.13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And who is the Lord, according to the Apostle Paul? It's Jesus, according to verse 9. He says it's the Lord Jesus. Call upon him to be saved. That's Paul taking verses from Moses, Isaiah, and Joel. And even Joel is taking the verse from Genesis 4.26. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Why? To be saved. To be saved and to further worship him once they were saved. They call upon him in that way. Okay. Now, somebody might say, I read into a lot of those verses. You read into a lot of those verses there in the book of Genesis. Those verses don't say all that. Well, not one single verse says everything in Scripture. That's also true, right? It does, not one single verse in Scripture says everything. But if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit makes clear what is normally ambiguous. The Spirit clarifies. And so when we see a passage such as the Lord appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18, it actually says that in verse 1, the Lord appeared to him. But then it keeps saying three men were there and talking to him. Later it says the Lord again. And then two of those men are angels. Well, if the text says the Lord appeared, then the Lord appeared. Amen. Right? So we read it as it is right there, and we wait for the Scripture to explain it further, but we already know from 18 verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Just like right here when it says the Lord, well, if we know from other Scriptures there's no other way of salvation, why would we think that this Lord that they called upon in Genesis 4.26 is somebody other than the Lord Jesus Christ? It has to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just showed from some examples that that's the case. Okay, so clarity comes from the Holy Spirit to illuminate and confirm the word of Christ to us. That's one. 
And no single verse explains everything. For example, we haven't explained the virgin birth of Christ. Yet, if someone denies that, immediately he's a heretic. But all of that's implied in what I'm saying. How could Jesus die, die on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for us if he was not born of a virgin? Correct? So the implications are there in the words we're using, even though every verse doesn't explain virgin birth, virgin birth, or perfect life, perfect life. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Every verse that speaks of Jesus dying for us does not say that, but we know from other scriptures that it is true, explicitly from others, and then implicitly in the very phrase, Christ died for our sins. Implicitly, we know he was a perfect Christ. Yes. That's why he could die as a substitute for us. You see what I mean by implication, even though every verse doesn't say it explicitly. Implicitly, they do say it. Moreover, people say, I'm reading later scriptures into earlier scriptures. Well, the Apostle Paul did that. The Apostle Paul is telling us what Isaiah believed and what Moses believed I, and, and what Joel believed. The Apostle Paul is telling us. So if it's wrong to use a later scripture to make sure an earlier scripture is correctly interpreted, then the greatest false teacher was Paul the Apostle, if we're not supposed to do that. But who said we're not supposed to do that? Just because somebody objects and says we're not supposed to do that, who says they're right? Can't a later scripture make it, make it clear to us what the earlier scripture intended, what the earlier scripture meant? Yes. And actually, even Moses does this. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, he essentially summarizes a little bit of Genesis, but mostly Exodus to Numbers. He himself summarizes and interprets again for us in the book of Deuteronomy what he said earlier. Moses did that. And then the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, they do that all the time with earlier scriptures, including Moses. They do it. They are interpreting earlier scriptures to make sure we understand their meaning. That's why the, the, the prophets, they rail against ritualism. They rail against ritualism, ceremonialism. They rail against it. They drive it in again and again and again into the thick heads of the people. Why? Because they were dependent on the rituals and they didn't care about the way they lived. That's why they kept preaching against them. Because they are correctly interpreting Moses. Even Moses preached that way, but they refused to believe the way Moses preached. So the prophets have to tell them again and again. The later scriptures confirming and affirming and clarifying any earlier scriptures accurately. And that's what the apostles do in the New Testament, including the Apostle Paul. So it's not wrong to use a later scripture to interpret an earlier one. We're not better interpreters than Isaiah, are we? Are we better than Paul? No. Therefore, use them to make sure of our interpretations. Furthermore, people say... They assume wrongly that whatever is written is exclusively or comprehensively what they knew. Whatever is written in the book of Genesis, that's all they knew. For example, Adam and Eve only knew the word seed. Seed, seed, seed. That was the only word they knew. Otherwise, everything else was ambiguous. They only knew seed, period. No further definitions of seed, no explanations of seed. They only knew seed. That's all they knew. They, they preach that way. They teach that way. That's all they knew. Really? That's all they knew? Well, what about John? John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We should not falsely assume that whatever is written is comprehensively whatever the prophet knew. Right. 
We cannot assume that. That would be a false assumption. Do we write, for example, today, everything we have in our head that we know about anything in life? Whether it's sports, gardening, shopping, clothing, fashion, the Bible, theology. Do we put everything in print that we know? That's not a human phenomenon, right? We don't do that. Why do we expect the prophets and the apostles to do that? In fact, the Bible says the opposite. John 21, 25. John 21, 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. He says, Jesus did many other things deeds, many other works, many other things, which would include preaching and practice, right? Performing miracles and explanations, many things which are not written here and not even in the whole New Testament. There's no way because in using this illustration, he says the world itself would not contain the books. The world, the whole world would not contain the books that would be written to write about everything Jesus said and did. So he wrote only a small portion of it, a very small portion of it, according to him, his own words. And even in the Old Testament, there are many examples of them not writing everything that is written or not writing everything that they knew, even examples in the Old Testament. May I use... The example of Moses, and I'll stop with that. I'll close with this example of Moses. Where was it that Moses went to commune with God? He went into the Holy of Holies, into the most holy place in the tent of meeting where the mercy seat was, correct? Do you think that throughout his life, the 40 years in the wilderness, that the 40 years that he went into the tabernacle, that the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy were the only things he ever understood and knew about God. If God was talking to him from there, look at what I'm reading. Exodus 25, Exodus 25, 21 to 22, 25, 21 to 22. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. And there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. He's going to give everything there to Moses. Moses was that kind of a prophet who spoke to God like a man speaks to his friend. Okay? This is the way Moses communed with God. Further, Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus 10. You remember the incident of Aaron's two sons dying instantly. They died instantly because they offered strange fire. Ironically, when the temple was I mean, the tabernacle was being inaugurated. They disobeyed at the start. And this is what happened. Um, They were killed instantly by the fire of the Lord. Well, Moses, in order to explain the incident and the justification for the incident, to Aaron says the following. Remember, Aaron's two sons had just instantly died. Leviticus 10.3. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. In verse 3, the introduction to God's words is, It is what the Lord spoke. The question Did God speak these words right after the two sons were killed? 
Or did God speak these words in some point prior to that incident in the past? It reads to me like the second, the latter. It is what the Lord spoke, meaning God had already clearly said what he expects of us when we approach him. He had already said it. That's why, because they disobeyed it, God was justified to kill them immediately. They had already known it. Therefore, God's justified to kill them now. But then my question is in verse 3. Where previous to this incident in Scripture, in Scripture, do we have these words, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. It's nowhere. It's nowhere previous to this in Scripture. This is evidence that there were words spoken that Moses preached to the people from God that were not written before. This incident brings the occasion for Moses to remind Aaron that he had said these words before so that God's justified in killing Aaron's two sons. This is just one example of something having been said in the past but not written in the past. In this occasion, something that was said happens to be written now. Now we know it as an example of something that was uttered but not written until this incident. And we could show many examples like this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And I showed you John 21, 25, because everybody knows about that passage. We cannot assume whatever is written is comprehensively what the prophet and what the people knew for their salvation and believed for their salvation. We can't assume that. Okay? Thank you. Thank you.